I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. We are unlocking all of the most effective tools to help athletes achieve their highest goals in sport. Each week, you'll hear elite athletes, experts, sports psychologists, trainers, and coaches share their unique advice, tips, and strategies for success. This week, we're talking to softball extraordinaire, Kat Osterman. She's a three-time National Player of the Year, four-time All-American, and two-time Olympic medalist. She did retire, but after hearing that softball was back in the Olympics, she came back. And guess what? She is on the Olympic team that will compete in Tokyo. She's currently an assistant coach for the Texas State Bobcats in San Marcos, Texas. And we talk about her career, how things are different now in her return to softball, and also how she and her team are working through this super strange corona season. If you haven't already, before we start, please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss a single amazing, inspiring episode. And while you're there, go ahead and read and review us. It really helps us to continue to bring on awesome guests and for other athletes out there to find us as well. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Kat Osterman, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Hey, I love that we reconnected and started talking about recording this podcast episode. And then all of a sudden, we were both on this University of Texas Longhorn Olympian panel that is actually airing today as we're recording this episode. I just love the timing of that. <laughs> oh, I know. It was funny. We like reconnected and I was like, hey. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm going to see you in a couple of days um, <laughs> or talk to you in a couple of days. But it's just fun. It's fun to have connections with um, people and def- obviously different avenues for us. I know. It's so cool. So, okay. We've kind of known, known of each other, you know, as we're both Longhorn athletes and we were on two Olympic teams together, but you came to UT shortly after I finished. So we didn't really cross paths on campus. Um, and, and I can't believe we actually grew up really close to each other also. Like you were in Cyprus and I was in Klein, just of the North Houston area. It's kind of cool. But so I want to know kind of about the beginning for you. Like, how did you get into softball and what led you to University of Texas? I just grew up as an athlete. I played everything. I tried everything. Um, I actually played softball for the first time in first grade and absolutely hated it. Really? Which is funny. Yeah. Well, in, in my defense, I guess the league that we had joined had just split off from another league. And so first through fifth graders were on the same team and fifth graders were pitching. Uh So when you have a first grader playing for the first time and facing a fifth grader pitching, it was kind of not fun. Needless to say, I don't think many of us first graders touched the ball and most of us were out in the outfield picking flowers. So nice. I played soccer for a long time, played basketball all through growing up, tried every sport, swam for a little bit. I didn't know that. Yeah, actually, it was on not, not super competitive, just like the neighborhood swim team during the summers. I enjoyed it. But at the, the time I started getting kind of heavy into that was also when I had decided I wanted to try softball again. And the second time around, I was bored being a goalie in soccer. So I asked my parents to try something else. My dad suggested softball and I absolutely fell in love with it. You weren't like you weren't you weren't leery about going back? No, not really. My dad just said, you know, I think I think you might enjoy it a little better. Obviously playing with, you know, just your like two year age group, you know, 8U, 10U, 12U, that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, I was like, okay, sure. And I started playing Little League and really, I really fell in love when, you know, Little League has rules to where you can only just like the boys do. You can only pitch so many innings in a week. And Mm -hmm. our other two pitchers had, because of a rain out, we had an extra game that week, had met their inning max. And so they asked, like, who wants to try to pitch? And being left-handed, I either play first base or outfield. There's nowhere else for me to go. And so I was like, I'll do it. Pretty much in my mind, anything to get out of the outfield. And so I had never even practiced it before, nothing. And I had just got out there and and tried. Pretty sure I struck out one of my first hitters. Wow. Probably because I threw so slow and no one knew what the ball was doing. (laughs) (laughs) But in my mind, I felt like it was destiny. It was ironic because at the same time, I had a school assignment that you had to write about your gift, like the gift you were given and how you can use it and things like that. And I didn't, in my mind, I kept telling my mom, I don't have a gift. And she's like, well, you're a good soccer goalie. I'm like, but I don't like it. Like you have to like your gift. You can't not, you can't not like a gift and think it's great. And I came home from my first pitching lesson after that game, telling my mom, I found my gift. I found my gift, which in hindsight, fifth grade me was, was right. I found what I was going to fall in love with for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, the decision to go to Texas, I think, I mean, you know, growing up in Texas, there's a certain point 
if your family has ties, it's easy to decide. But if not, you choose, you either like the Aggies or the Longhorns. <laughs> right. My, both my parents are from Southern Illinois. So we had no ties either way. And for some reason in like fourth, third or fourth grade, I just all of a sudden really liked the Longhorns. And I remember getting a University of Texas shirt for Christmas and I loved it. And I think I wore that all the way through middle school, maybe even high school. Must have been that beautiful burnt orange color. Right, right. That just jumps at you and snatches you in. So then when I got heavy into softball, obviously Texas had had a young program, but my dad would take me and some of my travel ball teammates. A lot of times my catcher um, would go spend weekends with us and we would go up to Austin and watch games. And I think more and more I fell in love with wanting to play softball for Texas. And I remember in about seventh or eighth grade asking my dad if he thought we could work hard enough for me to be good enough to walk on. Like I just wanted to be able to walk on at Texas because that's where I wanted to go. And so he thought, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure we could do that. Like we'll just work hard. And, you know, we kind of mapped out our plans, but um, obviously it it took a little bit turn for the better for me. And uh, yeah, when recruiting came, I did give other people a shot. I went on a visit to Washington. I had a, a visit set up at Stanford but just in my heart, as soon as I visited Texas, I was just like, this is home. This is where I need to be. And I love that. You were you were already a Longhorn inside. Yeah, I was. It was bad because like my family and I talked and was like, okay, we're going to take at least three, if not all four visits before you make a decision. And Texas was my second visit. And I had to like really convince my parents there's no point in going on another visit. Like, I know this is what we said, but I've changed my mind. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Well, so you you started, what did you do, one or two years before the 2004 Olympics were coming? Yeah. So um, my freshman year was the 2002 season, sophomore year, 03. After the World Series in 2003, I took off straight for um, Pan American tryouts. After that summer, I'm assuming Coach Clark and Coach Candrea, um, the head coach of our national team at the time, had a conversation about my chances because they had told us that if you made the roster of 15, you were, I was going to have to essentially redshirt and sit out a year. And uh, when I got back from the Pan Ams and had a meeting with Coach Clark and academics and compliance and all that, they basically were like, no, you're just going to go ahead and take out, take off a year. And I'm like, well, if I'm an alternate, I get to choose. And they were like, no, you're going to go ahead and take off a year. And I'm like, <laughs> but, but wait, <laughs> they told me if I'm an alternate and they're like, we're choosing for you. And I was like, okay, but I ended up making the roster. Oh, wow. Anyways. So yeah, I was the youngest player on that 2004 roster. Should have been a junior in college. Well, so what does this all look like for you? Because you're playing for the collegiate team. You're playing for the U.S. national team. Now you're having to redshirt. Like, did you continue taking classes? How did you balance all of this? We kind of back-ended my spring semester of 03. And right before it ended, registered for four classes via correspondence. And so I know I did biology, government, a history. And there was a fourth class. I can't remember what it was. Obviously, probably the easiest of them all, which is why I don't remember but I did four classes by correspondence. So I had nine months to do those. So yeah, I was on the road with the national team for the most part. And I would take my school books and do work on the road and on my computer when we could. And obviously we didn't have iPhones to be like hotspots for you to hook your computer up to. So it was a little different trying to do online work when you don't have readily Wi-Fi everywhere. Right. But I did those. And um, when I was home, I got to be around the team I could practice with them and I could be in the dugout if they had games. I just had to be in street clothes and being at practice with them wasn't as big of a hard hit. I mean, I wouldn't throw with the pitcher, like the the pitchers that were actually playing that year. I would normally have to throw before or after everyone else just so I didn't use up the managers during their practice time and whatnot. But Mm -hmm. it was hard. I was home for their very first tournament and I like sat in the dugout for five games. And I remember just talking to Coach Clark afterwards and I was like, I don't know that I want to be in the dugout. And she's like, well, don't you think you need to support your time? I was like, it's really hard that like, I literally have nothing to do. And while I'm trying to, yes, be supportive, I'm honestly not part of the team this year. Like, Mm -hmm. so, and my teammates kind of understood that. So it was a hard balance, probably more mentally because the team, Texas also went to Hawaii that year, which was my classes, like, big trip. Uh, and I was so fear of missing out when they were in Hawaii. Yeah. FOMO is real. It is. And I think <laughs> at that time I didn't know what it was called, but it was <laughs> for real. And they tried to be nice and like send me a postcard from Hawaii to wherever I was going to be next. And I was like, like this helpful. is a really <laughs> sweet gesture, but I'm really, really mad that you guys got to go to Hawaii and I didn't. 
Well, so, okay, because a lot of athletes do this in my sport, too, in diving also, that they take the year before the Olympics, if they think they have a shot, they redshirt. It's pretty common. Like, what is your advice for athletes who want to do that or if they should or if they're trying to make that decision? The athlete in me says, I mean, I think it's a good idea. It's like the chance to be able to dive all in. Well, diving. Nice no pun. pun. Nice no pun, pun intended. <laughs> um, but just, you know, completely immerse yourself in being able to train and get ready. And I think anytime any of us go to an Olympic trials, you don't want to have any regret of what if I had done it differently. Right. And so, you know, personally, I didn't have the choice. It was, you know, if you're on the team, you're going to have to do this. But at the same time, I look back one, there would have been no way I could have balanced trying to go to college and USA tour full time. And two, I think I got so much out of it training wise, because that's all you wake up to do every day is, is we'd lift in the morning, we'd go to practice, we'd condition after practice. You essentially kind of become a professional for a year. Yeah, you do. Without the the pay of a professional, you'd be <laughs> able to, you know, but you're able to live that life and really put your all into whatever that pursuit is. And so it's something I think is, uh, I mean, I guess if people were wondering if they would do it, I would probably encourage it. Plus, to be honest, like being a year older that senior year was kind of cool, just maturity wise. Well, so take us through what your first Olympic Games was like in Athens 2004. You're the youngest one on the team. You guys won a gold medal. Like what was that adventure like? Oh, it was crazy. Um, so yeah, we did like, I want to say it was like a 50 city tour, like tour before we went all across the United States. And that part was really crazy because obviously, again, we're talking 2004. So softball's on TV some like during the World Series, but not as readily as it is now. And so, you know, fans across the world are getting to see people see us play that they don't normally get to see us play except for maybe one time a summer on TV. And that fanfare. And then, yeah, we took off to Athens, which I mean, out of the two I've been to, that was by far the prettiest country. And I enjoyed it the most just being on the bus. And I would take a nap every day and wake up right when we like got to the coast where we could see the water. It was great. <laughs> you know, being 21, I didn't know what to expect. I, my teammates had done a pretty good job of talking to me about, you know, the nerves and what comes with it. So I was expecting that. And it is, it's, you think going to like the national championship for your sport in college is huge and you get there for the first time and you know, you, you have the, the, the body's shaking a little bit from nerves and you have to calm yourself down. And then you step on for me, the mound, but for the first time at the Olympics and the thought wasn't like, Oh, everyone in the country can see me. It's like, Holy cow, the whole world could be watching. This. <laughs> now, now is that like intimidating to you or do you like that? I want to say I liked it, but it had to be a little intimidating because my first pitch went like three feet. <laughs> it bounced six feet in front of the plate and went three feet off the plate, I think. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, my catcher was ready for it. Um, <laughs> being the youngest, I knew my role was going to be limited. You know, I wasn't our go-to pitcher, which was perfectly, you know, I knew that. I had really just been extremely fortunate that I made the team because I really didn't know age-wise if they would if they would take me or not, because leading up to that in the quad before I had only been on the main team for one year. And that was the Pan Am year. The two years before that, I had always been on kind of the second team, the elite team. Yeah. So after we played, we actually played Greece to open up. No, we played Italy to open up. And so each pitcher got some innings in that game. So that's where I got the nerves out. And then after that, I was pretty much told, you know, you're going to face Japan and you're going to be ready for that game. And then after that, you know, we'll keep you we'll keep you up to date if we're going to use you, but you need to be ready for the Japan game. And I was like, okay. And at the time, Japan had a ton of lefties and lefty on lefty always, or not, I shouldn't say always, but usually goes in the pitcher's favor, just like baseball. And so I had just basically been groomed all year for that one game. And uh, I got to pitch it and we went eight innings. So extra innings, which is never fun internationally, but um, we won three, nothing in the top, we scored wow. three in the top of the eight. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't think I realized at the time for being so young, how big of a moment that was because it clinched the one seed for us going into medal rounds. But, you know, just to be on that stage and play, I mean, Japan was one of the top three teams in the world at the time and, and to be able to pitch a whole complete eight inning game. But there were definitely moments in there that were a little nerve wracking. But for me, I just knew that was my, that was my, game. That was my moment at the Olympics. And so I was glad to contribute there. And I didn't pitch in the medal rounds, but they're the most fun thing to be part of anyways. I remember 
the last game, I was in the bullpen for most of the game in case Lisa got in trouble or got tired or whatever. Um, and so I watched most of it from the bullpen. But as soon as we got to the last inning, I was like, forget it. We're going to go stand in the dugout. Like, if I have to go in, I'll make it work. And as soon as we got the second out, like all of us were holding hands right on the rail of the dugout. We were super close together. And then we all looked and we we're like, we have to space out because we have to be able to jump over the fence as soon as we get the last <laughs> out. And so we all kind of spaced out. And as soon as we got the last out, just being able to jump the fence and dogpile. And for me being so young, just seeing or being part of like a true team, like not that we didn't have that at Texas, but like for nine months, we put blood, sweat and tears into training for that one moment and to see if, you know, it was just for the first time in my career seeing complete commitment to a team pay off. That's so cool. What a memory, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's real. I mean, that's, I love, all, I, I love a lot of the experience I've had, but that 2004 group was a special group and how we kind of gelled and, and worked together. Oh, that's so cool. Cause see, I'm an individual sport. So, I mean, we do have synchronized yeah. diving, but like for most, the most part, I'm an individual you know, player, I guess you'd say. So it's always fun for me to talk to to people on teams because it's a totally different dynamic. I got a little taste of that when I was at UT and we were like the swimming and diving team. And so we would all root for each other together. And that was that was pretty cool. But I can't imagine going through all of that at the Olympic Games together. That's so epic. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I can't, I don't know. I, I say I feel for you guys, but like, you know, the other divers, but it's not like y'all are, oh, some of them you might train with, but it's not like y'all are training every single day together. Right, a little different. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to know like, you know, two months ago you might have been dying during conditioning and someone, you know, someone picked you up and was like, All right, here you go. And then later on in a game you're able to go pick that person up because you know they have your best your the best intentions for you. So cool. Well, going back to UT, which is what you did after the 2004 Olympics, like you won just a ton of awards at UT and you still hold quite a few records like in victories, ERA, shutouts, no hitters. And you hold the NCAA record for career strikeout ratio per seven innings. So cool. And your second in all time division one career strikeouts with 2265. I mean, that's that is insane, girl. You you've had so many incredible feats, but is there any one moment, good or bad, in your collegiate career that stands out the most to you? One of the cooler moments was my junior year. No, maybe it was my senior. No, it had to be my junior. So Courtney Blades, who pitched at Southern Miss, and I think somewhere else prior, I think she transferred to Southern Miss, but she originally had held the career strikeout record. And um, obviously, you know, anytime you're getting close to it, the sports information department does their job and and lets everyone know how close you're getting to it. And so we were actually in California for a tournament and playing and uh, we had just finished playing UCLA, I think. Yeah. And we were getting ready to play UNLV. And originally I wasn't supposed to pitch the UNLV game, but I think I was like five strikeouts away from breaking it. And coach Clark was like, Hey, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, would you rather pitch, you know, two or three innings tonight and get it over with? Or do you really (laughs) want to you know, wait till tomorrow. Cause the next day we played Arizona on TV. And she told me, she's like, ESPN's already told me they'd rather they, they want to air it. And I was like, I don't really care what TV does. And I'm tired of everyone talking to it. So if I can get it done with in, in three or, or two or three innings and let's get it out, get it over with. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about it tomorrow. My parents came out to the tournament, which was, which was unusual. Cause they didn't usually come out to our California tournaments. They, you know, they'd come if we went to Arizona, but they didn't come to the far other ones, but my parents had come to that one. So we're playing UNLV and I got a strikeout to end, I think the second inning. And that was the record breaking one. Like I broke Courtney's record and my mom happened to get, and this is before, I mean, she had a decent camera, but not like the high end cameras they have now, but Uh she got a really cool picture of me pitching. And like, you can see the girl starting to swing and the ball is just above her bat. And we still have it. And that's the pretty cool. That was a pretty cool moment just because I think everyone thought that was a record that no one would touch for a while. Well, how could go mom get the picture of that? Yeah, right. And she just happened to be at the right angle at the right time, man. It was it's it's a pretty cool picture, especially knowing how long ago it was taken. So that was probably one of my my highlight moments. You know, we played big games in the World Series. I mean, is it was it it was it intimidating? So you talk about like, I just want to get it over with. I I don't care about TV. Like, is how much pressure is that when people are like you're about to break this record. You have to break this record. When are you going to do this record? I mean, is that like, how do you handle that kind of pressure? I can't even imagine that. I'm always trying to like avoid the scoreboard. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, it's like chasing the perfect 10 almost. Right. You know, it become like when you're 100 or 50 
strikeouts away or points away or whatever it is, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But then as soon as you get closer, almost everyone's counting it down with you. And I would try to like so hard not to worry about it during a game. And normally I like, I don't want to say I focus on my stats, but I pay attention to what I do to hitters. So that way I have an idea of like who did what and I can remember later on when they come up to bat again. But this time it was just like with every strikeout, you know, the team got a little bit more excited. And then obviously we had to talk about it and every interview wanted to be like, what do you think it's going to be like? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be just like every other strikeout (laughs) um, because we're going to be in the middle of a game and that's more important. (laughs) So yeah, it becomes a little bit of pressure, but Thankfully, I think it worked out best that we were in California and there because we had chose to not do it on a TV game. It wasn't like the pressure of, oh, everyone's watching. When am I going to get this like fifth strikeout or whatever it is? Yeah. Wow. Intense. Well, so, okay, tell me about your transition after college because you graduated in 2007 and then you competed in the 2008 Olympics, but didn't you go pro at that point somewhere? And I'm sure you were, you know, playing for the USA national team. Like that, I'm just thinking that had to be a, a kind of, crazy year. Yeah. So I graduated in 06. That was our world championship year. Or I shouldn't say that. I graduated in 07. I finished playing in 06, played world championships with USA that summer, came back to school for the the whole school year, finished up my degree in 07. And literally, I thankfully, I walked. That probably might be my biggest non-sport accomplishment because you know most of the time, graduation's in the middle of regionals or super regionals. So you don't get to walk. So the fact that I took another year and fit and graduated. Um, at least I can say my mom was really happy. She got to see me walk and softball didn't conflict with something again, but I walked. And then I want to say like three days after walking, I drove up to Rockford, Illinois, where I played um, professionally for the 2007 year. That was a little bit of a, I mean, again, that was a Pan Am year. Um, so I was coming and going in and out of Rockford all the time to go compete with USA and then come back and play pro ball and then go compete with USA and come back and play pro ball. And it was a little bit tiring, but again, I mean, you know, when we're immersed in the sport and it's what you love to do, like you'll almost do anything to make sure it happens. And so I did that. It was a little tiring. I stayed up in Chicago actually after that 2007 season, I had gotten a job at DePaul university and, um, worked there for three years. While you were still playing? Mm-hmm. Was that hard to balance? A little bit. I was fortunate, one, that I found a place to live super close to DePaul. So I could be in the weight room early in the morning or late at night when athletes weren't to train. And I threw, you know, I threw BP to the team. And then eventually when I would need to start throwing for real, our catchers would would catch me. But the hardest part was the 2008 year, because obviously just like the 04 year, we toured. So I wasn't really with the team for the spring season a whole lot. Um, there were parts of it I was there for. And that's where I laughed because I remember so much about that year. But then I'm like, I know I wasn't there that often. <laughs> and so for me, that was hard just coming and going because when I would come home, I would go straight into coaching. It wasn't I would come home and just kind of you know lounge around or regroup. I would go into coaching. And that might have been the hardest part because there was never really a mental break from being able to... Uh, get escape the game. That makes sense. Well, so how do you, how did pro, I guess, differ from college? I think, well, one thing pro ball differed is like, we had different coaches every single year. Um, it was always kind of like, who can we find to coach, who they could find to coach, whether it was somebody local, which being in Rockford, Illinois, it's not like there's a bunch of major D ones up there. And then two, it was just always a revolving group of teammates because you know, it pays and it's a good summer job. Don't get me wrong. But for the majority of the players, it didn't pay enough that you couldn't have another job or, mm-hmm. you know, we had so many that would play one, maybe two years and then they would be done. And so it was just different because there was very little consistency, I felt like for a while. But I think the, I mean, the biggest thing, and this is anytime you go pro is like, you're now on your own and accountable for yourself to make sure, you know, you're conditioning and lifting and eating right. And, doing the things you need to do because your coach isn't following you around, Mm -hmm. reminding you that you have to do this or you have to do that. And the other part is, you know, they're not, while they're paying you to play, it's not like you're on scholarship where they're like, okay, like you're here to essentially to work for me kind of thing. And um, so it was just different being, watching some people be really accountable and other people kind of almost take it as, I don't want to say rec ball, not rec ball, but just not not as seriously and obviously as seriously as I was since I was still playing on the national team as well. 
Yeah. So I guess, does that make it hard to like kind of gel as a team too, especially people are turning over so quickly and all that. And some people are serious, some people aren't like, that's gonna be a hard dynamic. Yeah. Um, it's hard. I think the good thing was like my first team in Rockford, we had a decent core of people that were able to stay. And in 2009, we actually won our league championship and on paper, we would have probably been the, the league's last pick to have won the championship, but we were able to gel together. And I guess the best part of that was 07, my team understood I had to leave and go with the national team. But then in 2009, my team really embraced when I was there. So when I would come home, you know, they, I don't want to say they were more excited, but they just were ready to play. And so it wasn't, there was no kind of animosity or, oh, cat's leaving again. Like they understood what I was doing. And so, it helps being able to come home and, and be accepted right back in. And then after 09, I actually got traded to uh, what ended up probably being one of the powerhouse teams in the league um, down in Orlando, Florida, the USSA Pride. And that was a different dynamic. I got to play with a bunch of my Olympic teammates. So the accountability and work ethic was, was a lot higher with that team. And in that case, it was a lot easier to feel consistent and know that, you know, everyone was on the same page. Nice. Well, what, what, I guess what advice would you give maybe to any athletes listening that for maybe those seasons, if you, if you are a team player, you're on a team that's, that's not cohesive and that doesn't gel well, or, you know, sometimes like even an individual sport, I mean, you're still trained with your team and they can still affect you. You know, you can have those people that are like cancers, you know, and they just pull everybody down. Like, what is your advice for like kind of how to keep your, your head on straight and how to, I guess, rise above all that kind of, yeah, I guess just uneasiness or whatnot. Yeah, I think... The best advice is just keep, I mean, keep your eye on on your goal and remember to do your part towards that goal. We can't control other people by any means and you can try to help them change a mentality or the way they act. But again, they're probably not extremely receptive to it if you're at an elite level and, and they're still somewhat of a cancer. But I think the biggest thing is just remember what you wake up to do every day, put in your work towards whatever you have to do every day. And if, I mean, obviously, if possible, avoid, avoid as many interactions as you can with someone who brings you down. But at the same time, if you have to be with them, you know, I know it's hard work to stay in a positive mindset and combat somebody who can be a cancer. But the more you do it, eventually, A, they'll change or B, now they'll avoid you because you don't feed into, you don't feed into their negativity. Oh, I like that. That's really good. Okay. Well, so going back, because now you're down in Florida, you're playing with Olympic teammates. So what was the 2008 Olympics like? And how was it the same or different from Athens in 04? You're now in Beijing in 2008. After 04, we had a pretty decent amount of turnover. There were some older players that retired and were done playing. So we had a young crop. Is, is the lifespan, what's the age, I guess, of a softball player like normally? It depends. And the national team is kind of what skews the inability, or I guess gives me the inability to kind of say, because Oh four, I know we had at least four, I think three or four that were in their thirties. Oh, okay. And then in Oh eight, we had probably one, I don't think Stacy was in her thirties yet, but she was probably in her late twenties. So national team kind of had a longer lifespan. There were, there were women that would play after having kids and having a family and those kind of things. So yeah, it was really cool to be able to see that. And then pro ball, the lifespan is relatively short. I mean, I played 10 years and there's some others that played eight to 10 years. Most people play probably two or three is the average, maybe four now. But again, like I said, it, it's a great paying summer paying job, but it's hard if you're not going to be like a teacher or a coach where you get the summer off to have another job and, and play professionally. But yeah, 08, you know, our, I think our average age might have jumped a bit. I mean, I was 25 now and the group that was ahead of me was still there. We added a few players that were younger than me into the mix. Didn't have any college players this time. So that was kind of a big difference because then it changed the way we chose our alternates because in 04, we showed all, chose alternates right away. So that way me and another girl who was an alternate, Lauren Lappin would have had the choice to go to school. And Lauren chose to go to school the 04 year and then just join us after the college year, where in 08, we didn't have any college teams. They were going to let us start touring and then choose the alternates, I think about two and a half, three months out of the Olympics. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, and none of us had really dealt with that before. Because again, 
up until the Olympics, we hadn't even had events where you had to name alternates. Like currently this last Pan Ams, we had to have alternates. And I was like, I'm pretty sure we never had alternates when I went to the Pan Ams before. I'm like, what is this? And our coach is like, <laughs> yeah, no, you, you didn't have to choose alternates. Y'all got to take 17 people. And I'm like, oh, that's why. So they chose our alternates in the middle of tour, which was interesting because obviously, you know, everyone hopes to make the roster. So therefore the, the response to being named an alternate in the middle of tour wasn't well received by a few of them. And I can uh, imagine. Yeah. So it kind of threw a wrench in, in what we were doing and kind of the team camaraderie for a little bit. Eventually we got back on track, but the 2018 was highly talented and, you know, we worked just as hard as 2004 and I can't ever say that there, you know, the end result was not the same. We lost in the gold medal game to Japan. I can't put a finger and say like, Oh, this team wasn't prepared or this team wasn't gelled as much. Cause I don't feel that way. I feel like we still were a very good team and we were gelled. You know, we did things a little bit differently than Oh four. I felt like Oh four, we watched more film the night before game and stuff like that. But I just think in the end result, when we got to the gold medal game, the worst time to have that game where like nothing, I say nothing goes your way, but I mean, we had best, our best hitter hitting into two double plays, which I had never seen her do. You know, one of our other really great hitters was up twice with runners in scoring position and, and couldn't drive them in. And, you know, after three great innings, I give up a home run. And it was like, where did this come from? Like, yeah, you know, and so I think it just kind of when it rains, it poured on us. And it was obviously if that had happened in, in preliminary rounds, it would have been fine. But it just happened in the gold medal round, which is a lot of times people want to be like, well, what happened? What was different? And it was like, it just was a different day. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting too, because again, like comparing the team and the individual, um, and I remember having this conversation with a water polo player, Brenda Villa. I don't know if you remember her. She's amazing. We were having this talk one time because I, I was asking her about her different wins because she's got gold, silver, and bronze medals from the Olympics. So I was asking her about the differences because for diving, when you're on the podium, I mean, yeah, maybe you're not happy if you missed a dive or something and you could have done a little better, but you're still happy to be on the podium generally, whatever the color is. But with team, like she was explaining to me that like, you love the gold because you're obviously winning the gold, but you also love bronze because you're winning the bronze, whereas a silver, you're losing the gold. And I had never thought of it that way before. Is that kind of how you guys felt, I guess? Because it's funny to me because I'm like, that's an Olympic silver medal. That's pretty amazing. But you're talking about it like, oh, it just wasn't the same and it wasn't quite there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, because the way it's set up. So like you said, if you get a bronze, you won a game between the three and four seeds technically, or, you know, the last, the bottom two of the playoff round. So you win, you, you really do, you win the bronze and then the gold medal game determines gold and silver. So you either win gold or lose gold. And so, you know, getting a silver, it took a while. Um, I'll be honest. I went to the press conference afterwards and I didn't have my medal on and someone asked me where it was. And I said, I don't know, somewhere in the locker room because I took it off and just kind of tossed it with my stuff because I was so mad. And you know, a lot of us were, I wasn't the only one. I think my teammate went to the press conference without it too. And she was a little more brash and said, you know, we didn't come here for silver, but it took a while to realize that, you know what, it's still a pretty big deal to, to be able to have a silver medal. Obviously you get it because you lost a game, but we won a game somewhere before that, that put us in that position. And that's the part that gets overlooked. And so, yeah, it's, um, that silver medal is a tricky a tricky thing in team sports for the most part. It's almost, I almost feel like you need to have another playoff game. So that way <laughs> feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> yeah. So that way you actually win your silver. Right. Well, so you went on to play a bunch of pro ball afterward, but, but the Olympics, uh, softball was taken out of the Olympics. I mean, was that, were you like, how did you feel about that? Did that, did you not care? Were you like, ah, I'm just doing pro ball anyway. It doesn't matter. Or were you kind of upset about that? I was really upset about it. So the announcement that it was getting voted out actually came in 2005. So not only were we voted out, but we had three years to sit there and mull about it and know that like 2008 was going to be it. And that's also why I think the ending of 2008 Olympics for us and the silver medal sat so harshly with us is because there was just a finality sure. that we didn't have another chance. Yeah. If you look at like, oh, when, we'll, we'll get them back in 2012. Like most of us probably would have played again, but we didn't have that, that vision. And, uh, so yeah, most of it. So we all played for two more years after 08. Um, we played through the 2010 World Championships. And then 
when it looked, you know, it was pretty clear that USA softball or softball's bid to try to get back in and, and beg to get let back in wasn't going to happen. We all walked away from USA softball and just played professionally because that was in our minds. We were like, well, we need to help this grow to give girls a chance to be able to continue to play because we don't know something else after college. Yeah. yeah. We don't know if they'll be able to play in the Olympics again. And you look at it and, you know, a pro league offers anywhere between 40 and 80 girls a chance to keep playing. And the national team offers 18 girls a chance to keep playing. So, yeah, you know, we, we all left to help the pro league grow. And, um, there were points in time when we were playing, the pro league was at a, was at a high and we, you know, we had anywhere between four and six teams playing at once, I think. But then in 2016, when, when softball got voted back, I know, you know, there's obviously I came back to play, but that generation I played with, there were a lot of people that were like, dang, four years earlier, this would have been nice. Or, you know, why couldn't we have gotten this um, a little bit earlier? But at the same time, we were super excited because there was probably already one generation that had lost their Olympic dream. And so, you know, now this next generation of athletes gets to have that dream again, and it's not completely lost, but we're in for 2020. Well, obviously 21 now, however you want to phrase it. Right. But then, um, you know, we're not in, in Paris in 2024. So we're, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So we're not on the permanent docket again. We are, they have given every, I don't know if this has always been the case and I just didn't know it, but every site can pick, I think it's two sports that get added in onto the docket for that Olympics. So baseball, softball being huge in Japan, Japan added them because technically we go down as one sport since we use um, the same facility now. Um, so baseball, softball got added. And then I don't remember what else they added. Man, that's crazy. I, did, I didn't know about that. Yeah. So we're going to hope that LA in 2028 puts baseball, softball back in. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope so, man. So, okay. You, uh, let me back up a little bit here. This is so good. You, you went back to university of Missouri to get a master's degree. Were you like, while you were playing, playing pro, were you getting that degree? Yeah. So I did that online. Um, I didn't actually go, but yeah. So one of my, probably might've been the first year I played with the pride in the second year, we drafted a girl from Missouri. And when she got to us, she, was take she was going through this master's degree course. So she was talking about it and I was like, this sounds really interesting. I had originally my plan after graduating Texas was to go to Cal State Fullerton and study sports psychology under Ken Revisa. But one, I had the Olympic year coming up in 2008 and I was like, well, I don't really want to start a master's, stop a master's and then, and then go again. And then I got the job offer at DePaul. So I was like, well, I have a job offer doing what I want to do coaching. So in the end, working and getting the job one out. And this was a degree, while it says educational counseling and psychology, it was a positive coaching degree, kind of a semi-sports psych, but more applied to coaching than just research-based. So I looked into it and uh, eventually, you know, I was like, okay, this sounds like something I want to do. And at the time I had aspirations to possibly be a head coach one day. And, you know, there's always the like, master's recommended on the on yeah. your job description. So <laughs> right. I was like, well, Gotta have that resume. <laughs> right. Might as well have it. Olympic champs, just not enough. Yeah. Right. So I did, I think about a year and a half, I registered late. So I ended up taking classes, not in, not hundred percent in the correct order, which delayed me like a semester instead of being done in like a complete year. But yeah, I put myself through, um, through grad school and while coaching and playing, um, I was coaching at St. Edwards in Austin at the time a D2 school. And then I would go play in the summer and yeah, I would take my books with me over the summer. And there would be days that my friends would be like, Hey, let's go here. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let me finish reading in this assignment. Give me like an hour. (laughs) Well, and now you're coaching at Texas state. I think that's so cool. Like how, I guess, do you think you're playing and obviously you're playing again now while you're coaching, like how does that help your coaching? I think being able to be back in an athlete mindset helps me be able to relate to our players a little bit. As you know, like once we start, for most of us, we start started at a young age and pretty much did our sport all the way through college. And then even if you do it professionally after you like, you just are in a continuous go, go, go mode that you kind of forget at what points you learn certain things. And mm-hmm. so I retired for about two and a half, almost three years. And then getting back into it, it I don't know about you, but for me, it, it, the mental side of it was the hardest part. You think you're going to practice and go out and just pick up where you left off, which 
It's like I know riding makes, a bike, right? <laughs> right. I know it makes no sense when you actually say it, but in our minds, for some reason, we can make it make sense. And so once I started playing again, I would, you know, I would come in and not complain about my bullpens, but just be a little bit frustrated. And it was funny because the head, the head coach I work for, Coach Woodard, would point out, she's like, hey, remember how we tell the kids, like, you have to trust the process and like, there's a process. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, don't you think you have a process? And I was like, no. <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> right. I, is that what the first 20 years of my life were? Um, she's like, you know, you are getting... So it was like one of those reminders that everything we preach to our kids, we have to, we have to remember it applies to ourselves too. So getting back into it, I've just been able to relate to them right now being that, you know, season was canceled. We do, we're doing a, um, it's called mind, right performance, but it's kind of mental skills, like the mental, mental toughness skills and stuff like that. And it's a, it's just like an online kind of module thing. You just read and click and take some quizzes and whatnot, but we talk to them about it a lot. And it's just interesting because I can answer now as an athlete, a current athlete and how things feel and talk and, it's just cool to be able to say, you know, oh, you know, in March before we broke, I was dealing with this as opposed to, well, back in 2010 when you were <laughs> like 12. So, well, so do you think coaching, being a coach right now makes you a better player or do you think being a player right now makes you a better coach? I think coaching has made me be a better player and probably a little bit better teammate. I was, and I'm not going to say I was a terrible teammate, but I just was very self-focused as far as making sure my pitching was what it needed to be for the team. I didn't completely neglect people, but I also probably didn't invest in the relationships as, as well as I could have. I have some really close friends that I played with. And I think it was one of those that I obviously could, I felt like I was a type of, I could play with anyone. If I didn't like you off the field, I could still play softball with you. If you wanted to win, I wanted to win, then we're good. But I think being a coach has taught me just how to invest in those relationships a little more, how to communicate differently with different people, things that I didn't know or didn't think were as important as an athlete. So not necessarily for my pitching specific stuff has coaching changed me, but in just being a teammate and communication wise, I think coaching has helped me be a better player more than playing has helped me be a better coach again. Oh, that's so fascinating. I love it. You're in such a unique situation there. It's so cool. Well, okay. So where were you in the whole COVID-19 situation? Because I know we were just talking about this in our UT panel the other day. So I want to tell tell everybody like kind of what was the situation when all of this insanity kind of ensued? So we were, we had actually just, we're in the middle of our second leg of our tour. Um, we had a tour called the Stand Beside Her Tour. That was our lead up to the Olympics and kind of a, it was our, our way of having like, you know, a women empowerment stance. So stand beside her, not only meant our team, but meant the little girls or the women in your life. And on top of it, obviously America, since she's usually represented by Lady Liberty. But we had done our first leg, which was like 26 days on the road. And we're in the middle of our second leg in California. We had a trip to Washington planned and, you know, there was hesitation on whether we were going to go or not. We ended up going, but from the time we landed, changed clothes, went to practice didn't interact with anybody because they had brought lunch to the hotel for us already. There was nobody at the indoor where we practiced at. Got back on the bus and came home. The NBA had halted their season. And so after practice, we literally, well, some, I don't know, we didn't really have much time. Dinner came. And by the end of dinner, they were like, get on the bus. We got on the bus and they essentially, we went to the bus to have a meeting. Why on the bus? I don't know, but we did. And they told us, you know, here's the company card. If you can book a red eye tonight, book a red eye, get home. We're going to halt tour right now. I mean, did you guys see that coming or was that kind of like a slap in the face, bit of a shock? It's interesting because being older and having talked, you know, talked to my husband during this, he had said, and this is what I really honestly think NCA was trying to do was NCA was trying to get through March Madness so they could make their money on TV and ads and whatnot and then shut down spring sports because obviously it looked like Corona was going to be picking up. And then Corona picked up at such a high speed that they had to shut down March Madness. And so in my mind, I was like, at some point, we're going to halt tour. And by this point, you know, Austin had already canceled South by Southwest. There had been a couple other big conferences that had postponed things. And I raised the point in one of our meetings. I said, you know, other people are postponing things and canceling things. And like, really for us, the only 
the only uh, kind of safety net we had done was like, we weren't taking selfies or high-fiving fans because that was too close interaction. Mm -hmm. At what point do we protect ourselves? Because we're flying all over the country. And if you had told me we were busing to Washington, I might've felt safer because no one's on our bus except for us. So it was being older. I kind of expected it. I'm not so sure my, some of my teammates did. And then when we got home, I knew right away, like as soon as we got home, I looked at my husband and was like, okay, at some point the Olympics are going to get postponed. Are we okay doing this for another 12 months? Because I'm going to have to tell them once it's postponed, like, yes or no, I'm still in or I'm not. And then obviously a week later, I think it was, they got postponed. And I just think it, I think it was easy to see the writing on the wall, um, to be honest. So it was something that I was able to easily digest. And so it wasn't a complete slap in the face when things were halted. And then obviously the delay happened. Now, I didn't think we would be going almost two months, but it is what it is. I was, I was, I was mentally prepared for about four to six weeks. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Saw it coming. <laughs> uh, well, how are you navigating this, this crazy time at home? You know, it's, uh, it's been difficult, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. At first, it was fine. Like, oh, great. I can do whatever workouts I want to do. Obviously, work out on my own time frame, all that kind of stuff. But then as the weeks go on, you know, as I mentioned before, we started recording, like it feels like Groundhog's Day 120. And I just, I just want to be able to go interact with people and, you know, not have to stand six feet away and pretend like we're all aliens that can't like have any, any type of interaction. Well, because you're and you're part of being a team. So like you're used to being around your team and people all the time. You're either playing or you're coaching. So yeah, I can see how that is a big deal. Like how, how does this affect you guys as a team? Like are you staying like in contact? Are you having team chats or is it just kind of you're all feeling isolated? Yeah, no, we definitely we have team. We have a weekly team chat. Um, and then I think most of us keep in touch, obviously text, FaceTime, those kind of things. Um, but I mean, you hit it on the head like Prior to January, we had all trained essentially by ourselves at home, which I'm sure you're like, oh, poor you guys. <laughs> but but it's not what we're used to. And so for yeah. me, especially me as a pitcher, like I would rather be throwing to, I say a real catcher. My husband would not take offense to that, but a real <laughs> catcher versus my husband. And I'd rather see hitters in the box instead of a dummy or a tee that I'm pretending is a hitter. Right. And just there's so much of our practice that is team oriented that, you know, gets it gets old practicing by yourself for a while. So I think for the first two or three weeks, we were all good. Okay, we'll continue doing our stuff and working on our own. And then almost like a mini vacation, right? Right. Sort of. Yeah, a mini break. And then then now we're all like, okay, when do we get to go get back together? So we do a team talk every week. We call it TED Talk Tuesday. It's actually kind of funny. (laughs) So, you know, there's people who are very passionate about different things. Um, One of our girls has done um, kind of a I guess almost like a wellness coaching mm-hmm. degree of some sort. So she got on and talked about self-care and oh, great. Um, another teammate talked about nutrition and one is actually a strength and conditioning coach. She was at Florida or yeah, Florida A&M, but um, ended up having to leave that job for, for the Olympic pursuit. But so she got on and talked about like how we can train at home and what parts are important. To Man, you got a really cool team there. Oh yeah. Everybody able to like t- tackle a different, you know, section of the mental and physical. <laughs> right. Well, I just laugh because I'm like, I don't know what, I, if, if my time comes, I don't really know what I'm going to add on to all of this, but um, <laughs> we'll figure it out. So, but yeah, it's been good. We, we find ways to connect and um, keep in contact. And then obviously now that USA national team is, is trying to figure out how we're going to proceed. Um, we get to, you know, have some more talks to talk about our schedule and what kind of things are going on. Are you guys kind of in the chat on like what the schedule might look like? Cause they said you are going to remain the team for 2021, right? Yeah. So, um, thankfully USOPC, um, kind of delegated to the governing bodies. If your team was already named or people had already qualified, um, you get to decide if that's, essentially who your governing body wants to go to the Olympics with still. And so our, our governing body had said, yes, this is a team we wanted to move forward with. Um, you know, we didn't have any situations to where like people couldn't try out cause they were hurt or stuff like that. So they recommended that this be the team that we move forward with. And we've been told that USOPC is supporting that up to this point. So 
barring anybody changing their mind of being on the team, we won't have to do another tryout. So that's great. We have a task force that they named four or five athletes that we get to kind of help figure out what the scheduling looks like. Um, Obviously right now it's going to be dependent on when things open up. And unfortunately for us, most of our exhibition play is against colleges. So we also have to wait to see what colleges are going to let their teams do. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for the young athletes coming up right now that are in this similar situation or maybe down the road, you know, for any athlete handling some kind of adversity? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I've said it a few times, the biggest thing that I've figured out during this quarantine and this downtime has been, it's a cliche that we say a lot, control what you can control, but it's the truth. And, you know, we can't control that coronavirus hit. We can't control how long it's going to keep us in our houses, but we can control what we do with our day. We can control the mindset we have. Um, you know, I think more than anything right now, if people haven't learned that your mind is, is such a amazing tool, it can, you know, make or break you really. Cause I think there are days I wake up and I have to remind myself, I am still very fortunate that this situation could be a whole lot worse than just being at home on the comfort of a couch with a TV and everything else. So I've just, and I think that goes with injuries too. And I'm sure you've had your share of them, but you can only control what you can control. And if there's rehab exercises that you can do umpteen amount of times all day, then you do those ones all day. You do the ones that you only supposed to do like three sets of 10 on three sets of 10, but other things, you know, you do what you can not to push yourself past what your doctor says, but you know, if they say, Hey, any time of the day you can do, you know, fist pumps, if it's an arm injury or whatever it is, then do those all day. So that way, hopefully you start to improve yourself more than they expect and that kind of thing. And I've, you know, I've been through some injuries and I think that without knowing it, that was kind of my mindset too, was just, okay, they lay a plan in front of me. What can I control? Okay. I can control this, this, and this, then let's focus on those things and not what I can't do. Because obviously, the more we start focusing on what we can't do and stuff like that, it just becomes such a negative, mm-hmm. a negative viewpoint. Yeah, I 1000% agree. That's perfect advice. Kat, you are absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and just impact and inspire so many people, myself included. And we will be cheering you on next year in Tokyo. Thank you. I will be obviously cheering you on still. Too, so. <laughs> Fingers crossed for you. Thanks. Well, hopefully we'll be over there together. That'd be awesome. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.